Hello and welcome back to Ms. McIntosh, my darling, the commentary. Um, I got part three done of volume three um, for women's experiences and a lot of um, <clears throat> stuff that I looked up hopefully as we talk about Esther Longtree's. Uh, hopefully there's a couple more things that can help explain kind of what's going on here or, what, or maybe what Young's intentions were. We're in chapter 72. We did 1 through 30, so we're going to finish up the chapter today, starting with paragraph 31. Esther figures if her parents were ever found out about her, they would be surprised. Maybe they were right and she was vulgar, but that came with experience. She was happy when she was alone, not thinking anything and plodding along the gray, uneven fields. Her feet were bigger than size 11 shoes. Esther describes herself stripped, stripping naked and rolling around on the ground and eating fruit. She was strong and was gathering strength for the winnowing test when she might be laid low. Her acting like this would make her parents and children sad. 32. Esther feels pregnancy was a blissful condition of body and everlasting instead of what other women complain of as evil fate. She felt this way even though there was a modicum of sorrow in this happiness because she had lost her babies early. Esther asked Dr. O'Leary's advice when he came in to get a drink. The drink cost a nickel, which dates the time the story takes place between 1930 and 1959. The doctor says God loves a silent woman. He thought she might have other problems. He advised against eating sugar, which Esther laughed off and decided not to heed. She lists the mistakes that Dr. O'Leary made in treating his patients to show that he might be wrong and she right. His was the arctic glare, the driving snow. Hers was the great yawning hope that distended sense the void. 33 Esther claims there's nothing wrong with her and even the stillborn were perfect. She wondered how this could happen to her. The doctor said that was the modicum of sorrow you might expect in your condition, Esther Longtree. 34 There's something about all of us, he said, that is unrealized. 35 Esther sat behind the counter trying to remember the disappointment. She remembered it had happened one night at the skating rink when she broke her garter. Esther was suddenly taken by childbirth and was vertiginous, while all the other skaters passed by. Virginius means dizzy. No one helped her. Who would not be saddened if it happened to them as to her? Yet she was still hopeful. 36. Esther believed her mind was clear, but her body was clouded or vice versa. Her boss had told her to not play with the little children in the restaurant or have them here. There was nothing psychologically wrong with her, according to the doctor. He claimed she was the immortal medical case and baffling. Even though her bald spot was growing, she was in excellent condition. She had prepared everything for the coming baby. She even knitted a little black suit for the firstborn who would live and be not lost. Sometimes she would unravel the stitches in order to be able to knit them again, but lately with her fingers busy and her mind clear, she was knitting without needles or thread and never did unravel anymore. 37 troubles did not matter to a pregnant woman. Esther's stillbirths did not trouble her the way it would other women. No one seemed to see that there were black circles under around her eyes, that her heart was hollow, and no one ever realized except, of course, the happy fathers. 38. The fathers knew because Esther always told them. If something happened to the fathers, they were free to dream that they were the fathers of her little children clinging to her skirts, climbing into her arms, pulling at her hair. That was when the fathers were the happiest, when even she might be deceived into thinking that all had been true and she the mother. It still disturbed her to get mail every now and then asking after the children. 
Esther could not answer them, and she pondered endlessly upon the shallowness of the men, their carelessness, their mystifying mystery years, years after the conception by asking if the child was ever born when they should have realized it, that it was stillborn, for they were the sterile fathers or they were the impotent. They would have known what the answer was. Send Esther more were the packages with clothing or toys for children. 39. Esther wondered what father would do this terrible thing to her. 40. So this is we're not sure if it's father as in God or father as in her father. Um, so it's because father's not capitalized. So, um, so that leaves it open to interpretation. 40. Esther receiving things for the children would almost make her mad and she would lose another. She claimed she had a stillborn that looked like a fish because the father looked like a fish. But it was probably just her imagination for one who had had so many stillborn could hardly not imagine things and even that her heart was hollow and entangled with no creature in the void creation. 41. Esther ate cereal, bread, and sugar in order to have strength for the little shadow boxer. She had never eaten ergot, had never tried to get rid of it, the child. Ergot is a fungi that in the 1930s companies marketed to women whose pregnancy was not progressing since abortion, drugs that aborted a fetus, and birth control devices were illegal. The FTC deemed the pills unsafe and ineffective and stopped their sale. In 1774, it is documented that midwives used ergo or ergot to ease delivery of a baby. Esther wondered what about bringing a child into a troubled world, but why think so much? 42. Esther kept bu herself busy at the restaurant, just knitting without thread so that the boss would not see them. When she was home, she put her higher education to work. She kept lovebirds, and the salesman kept her busy. She named the lovebirds and believed their noise would stop her mother from hearing the stillborn. Martin Luther was a German priest, theologian, author, and hymn writer, a former Augustinian friar, he is best known among Christians as a seminal figure in the Protestant Reformation and as the namesake of Lutherism. Bo Guest is an adventure novel by British writer P.C. Wren, which details the adventures of three English brothers who enlist separately in the French Foreign Legion following the theft of a valuable jewel from the country house of a relative. Published in 1924, the novel is set in the period before World War I. It has been adapted for the screen several times. Who cared if people said that she was an old maid with her lovebirds, her knitting, her old parents, that she was ugly and stubborn and mean, that she had always been queer and was a failure? The secret of secret was hers. This luminescent pregnancy and this career of human wildness, which no one but herself could ever realize. 43. Esther thought the failure was hers, and she had only been successful with the lovebirds and the salesmen and the successful stillborn. The stillborn were the most successful. She claimed to have failed as a teacher because she was fired from a job at college and at beauty college. When even the undertaker wouldn't have her to paint the dead for fear she would make them funny, winking in their long sleep as he told her mother. She was brilliant, but dumb. 44. Esther believed there was nothing wrong with her, but there might be something wrong with the abode of the deity and of the blessed dead who wandered when they should be still and tucked away in the graveyard. The doctor said there was nothing physical wrong with her except she feared too much. Her chief trouble was traceable to her parents. He said that the horror was not to be her parents, but to be their child. The parents could get the parents could rid themselves of the child, but the child could never get rid of the parents. The doctor believed whatever was wrong with her would end with her, and he predicted that her disappointments would pass away and not be seen again upon the earth. Yet Esther saw her little fears made physical. 
45, Esther thought she was far along with dark circles under her eyes. She was expanded, her senses expanding almost to another sense. Her hope was prolonged and had no element of hopelessness in it, no dark despair. Once the little shadow boxer was born, then the ghosts of the other dead children would disappear. 46, Esther insisted there was one child, he whom she could not hide away from her own eyes. 47, Esther says it will not always be a disappointment. There is no blood. It will come when I am least expecting. 48, Esther claimed this child she could never have gotten rid of, could never have drowned with the others, could never have extinguished. He who was eight years old or older. She would rather change the subject to her infinite happiness, her pregnancy, which was her secret, the little shadow boxer, the little child unborn. She thought she would deliver the little shadow boxer who had grown and grown and warded off every blow and had evaded her searching finger. She had not tried to prevent, abort, or frighten him. She dreamed the baby would be born breech and die, entangled in the umbilical cord as he came forth, should spring out through the trap door in the floor of the pear-shaped chamber under her heart, should hang himself by accident in the church steeple when the birth waters broke, and then for spite upon her say to the people that his own mother had murdered him. 49. Esther thought she shouldn't worry over nothing. That she was different from other women and would give birth without pain and without knowledge if ever she gave birth. She was the immortal case where all were mortal. She was Dr. O'Leary's only living patient. The doctor believed all sickness was the fault of the sick astronomers, of the ether, of the whirling stars. There were too many confusions and involvements, and only the dead gave birth. The human skull within the maternal womb grew ever bigger, especially in the Middle West. But the maternal pelvis was smaller than the needle's eye, through which it was written of old, the camel shall not pass. How is birth possible now in the Middle West or Middle East except by miracle? the women being small-mouthed urns and the needle's eye. Esther still might prove them wrong since she was different, so she must have eternal hope. The doctor believed Esther had passed beyond the rim of human knowledge and all that would happen to her had already happened as to the dead. Indeed, she was stretchable. There was no problem but one which none could solve. Had she not always gone through her cycle alone from conception to pregnancy to lactation to giving birth? Esther asked the doctor where the father's and child's pulse were. 50. Dr. O'Leary said he couldn't feel another pulse because he couldn't even find his own, and questions why Esther comes to him. The doctor believed the human body to be apparent. Now he realized he saw another human body that was false, so he was confused and retired from practice. He had no answer for Esther. 51. Esther asked what the answers were to why she should be hiding behind an angelic facade where the unmarried hid. Why was she so different from her parents who were inexperienced, the innocent? Her father was too big and her mother was too small. Esther was abundant and generous and loving and big-fisted, and she was firm-fleshed, no shriveled features, no hypocrisy. Esther claimed to have heard the child cry and wondered who had disappointed her. Was it in her mind that was hovering expectation of the great bubble which precedes creation and might be all the creation there ever was, like the doctor had warned her? He thought we might all have been mistaken that there might have been as yet in all creation only the bubble, the foam, the afterbirth, the cold starlight. Esther wondered if she was mistaken, even though she had memorized every step of birth, so that she would know the beautiful bubble which precedes creation but is not birth. She claims the birth waters are under her heart and that the umbilical cord connects two dark shores. She describes the physical birth of a child. 52. Esther describes how she is always happy. Nothing would have amazed her but not to have been amazed at all. Nothing would have sorrowed her but not to have sorrowed. The doctor says a spinal column without a memory would be an idiotic spinal column. Esther had an excellent spinal column in all her senses. She would think about where she might have put them, the stillborn, the loved ones, the little fears. 
She describes how she looks but cannot find them and describes all the places she's hid them in nature. She had found the little bones that were hers so she could almost believe that she had deceived herself alone, that she was never pregnant. But she had a good brain, a memory, so it had happened as she had said, and she was always pregnant, swelling like a tide and reacting to touch, to stinging, her breasts swollen, her breasts already marked by the marks of small, soft, uneven teeth like flowers. If there were no children, it was all the fault of the sterile fathers. Perhaps she had given herself too easily to the many fathers. She wondered why the fathers had never complimented her looks and only focused on what was wrong with her, who had ever appreciated her as she really was. And we see that echoed, echoed uh, something similar like that echoed with uh, Miss McIntosh and Mr. Spitzer. Oh, maybe it was Mr. Spitzer. I think almost the exact wording was, was said by Mr. Spitzer as well. Only nature appreciated her. Nothing was sadder in nature than a mule. Her searchings for the truth were noiseless. Only the lie roared. Between the interstices of her, her thought, that was where the truth hovered, too delicate to touch with a human finger in the darkness, even with hers. 53. It was not Esther's fault because she was loving and was she was kind and she was maternal. How she had given herself to too many or too few, that the fathers were sterile as dust, that she was beautiful when she was alone, that her hair was falling out by handfuls. Esther wanted to be loved by a single human being. The men always talked about themselves and their lives, and several had insulted her, threatened to kill her, or preached at her. She had tried to pay, or one had tried to pay her as if she were a prostitute. 54. Esther. Esther had one burning question, who killed Cock Robin? Who killed Cock Robin? Is the, Cock Robin is an English nursery rhyme and there are many theories as to its meaning. I'm pretty sure Young meant the, uh, the Welsh legend of Luke. 55. Esther thought about everything. She laughed about the fathers who thought they were not sterile or had thought, about, or had thought they were fathers. 56. Esther tried not to laugh too hard or she would dislodge the bubble before it was ready and then she would have to start all over again great enterprise of her great loneliness. She doubted her memory for a brief moment. A woman great with heat, everlastingly pregnant, would naturally endure a moment of fleeting doubt, not only of herself but of others, for was anybody guiltless of this guilt? Did not all people come into the world to die? And was there not something stillborn in every stream and every flood and every rose? The landscape was not heard and the music was not seen, and there were perhaps things seen only by her. There was nowhere for a pregnant woman to go. 57. Esther said one father sent a baby blanket. The father should have realized that the child was dead before its birth. 58. Esther thought some of the fathers had endured their losses long before they met, so they came as mourners when they came to her. Esther was un the unforgiven mother. One man had sat with her and told his life story from beginning to end. When his wife's sister's daughter died, he had left everything behind because he couldn't deal with the child's death. He had stopped only for a moment here and would have no child, but his little girl, whom he sought for, asked for earthly paradise, and he had a bag of candy for her. Things like that affected Esther Longtree's heart. So she's the unforgiven mother. Um, and this little story about the, the a man being attached, so attached to the wife's sister's daughter that he... Um, that he disappeared, he, he left everything 
uh, behind and took off because he couldn't deal with that child's death. I don't know. I'm not sure. I was going on with Esther, and I did follow it at one point because Mr. Spear, uh, Mr. Spitzer, being the father of all, the father of... So if you go through Christian, because there's a lot of references in the Bible, uh, to the Bible in the book. Um, if you follow Mr. Spitzer back along that line, the parents of Mother Mary uh, is St. Joachim and St. Anne. So that could be a possibility. Um, Esther could be Eve, and there's several different stories, not just in the Catholic Bible, but in uh, Cabal, Cabal and, I think, Gnostic literature. So there's some interesting stories, which I've talked about earlier about that. And then also Lilith, as, as the Unforgiven Mother, is the first wife of Adam who would not submit. So all of that could be in there as well. Maybe. Who knows? It's interesting, though. It was fun to look it up. 59. Esther worried that her mother might hear the whispering little voices. Her mother spied on her through the keyhole, and once Esther was asleep, came in and covered her. Esther had to be careful for fear her mother would find it out, her wild career, her pregnancy. Esther woke up in the middle of the night to feed a hungry child. She was gentle, not angry, and her compassion overwhelming toward a small, helpless thing, her cold right hand. So she nurses her own hand. So in this, so in some instances, not just this one, there's more hints throughout. She's like stark raving mad, like she's not mentally there. She would mother it, her little child, could talk to it, would still its fears. This is why she had the lovebird so her mother would not think she was talking to her child, a.k.a. her fist. Sometimes she would sit naked in front of a mirror, rocking back and forth, nursing her strong right fist until there was no cry. Cheval glasses, long mirror mounted on a swivel in a frame, allowing it to be tilted. 60. Esther says she would never kill a child, for she nursed it and was pregnant in order to have yet another child. How could this, how could this she was now carrying be premature? How could this be premature, her child whom she had nurtured for countless moons? 61. Esther was on her feet working when she should be lying down. She answered, who killed Cock Robin? Nobody, she said. All people killed him. She lists all the things that killed him. It was the fault of nobody. He was killed by the death that was in him from the time of his birth. He killed himself. And the last paragraph, Esther did not kill Cock Robin because she was always pregnant. And also there's, also it hints, especially with the uh fable, I don't know if it's folklore or fable, about Cock Robin um, uh, being Lug and that folklore, that is also hearkening back to the seasons, the coming and going with winter and spring, Persephone, Demeter, all that good kind of stuff. So there's just a lot going on. I'm still not sure. I'm still, after reading all the stuff I've read, Still not sure, but, um, uh, yeah, it only gets worse <laughs> from here. There's only more, but I did, uh, finish because there's a lot of rape in the upcoming chapters. And so it, I had added that and part of women's experiences since they talk about it in the book and, um, what that can mean in terms for Esther, especially for young, because, you know, Freud was still 
a big thing. And um, one of his disciples, Deutsch, Helena Deutsch, uh, came up with femininity, femininity meaning uh, masochism, and that women had to have a certain uh, amount of masochism in them in order to deal with reality. And so there's that that's going on, I think, with Esther, like that internal psychology of it. And then also because Young mentioned City of God by St. Augustine. And so his was, because there's a point in here where she talks about it and that uh, it's her, her, conscience is cl- her conscience is clear. And uh, St. Augustine, because rape has been, you know, through the history, Susan Brown Miller's book looks at it through historical ter- times. And one of the ones she brought up was St. Augustine's reply to it in that, you know, there was always this, what do you do with the women who have, women or girls who have been raped and they, you know, and they belong to a certain ethnic group or religious group and, you know, what do you do with them? You know, just throw them away or, or, and some women had committed suicide because they were ashamed of it. And Augustine's answer was, uh, the only chastity that matters is the inner chastity his way of dealing with it that if you had a, a pure heart to begin with then somebody else committing a sin against you didn't affect you in any way so um so this passivity the female passivity and masochism and this clear conscience that she has with the with these rapes there's more than one with these rapes meaning that it doesn't affect her because she herself is sees herself as chaste so because she can see herself that way, these sins that have been committed upon her or anything like that doesn't affect her. But that's still, I mean, I, I, after I looked at that, I was like, okay, that, that makes sense. I can, I can see that with Esther, with Esther's storyline. But um, still with the stillbirths, I would try and go back to some philosophy for it. <laughs> um, like I said, the only, thing, the only couple of things I could come up with is that like, like the banality of evil, that it's not, you know, it's not this special monster here. You just have this normal woman that does these things. And even though she says she has all this education, she really doesn't. And the very last line of the novel is, is wonderful to point that out. And um, the other part of it is like, we're all in this together. So you can't really ostracize one part of society or a person in society because we're all in this together. Like we're all groping in the dark together to find some kind of answer. So I don't know. It's hard. Esther Longtree is the hardest character to kind of wrap your head around. And also because just the stuff that happens in the chapters are so dark um, that it's, it's, I, I just found it really difficult. Um, I don't find a lot of people talking about Esther's chapters and they focus more on Mr. Spitzer, Miss McIntosh, not even Catherine Cartwheel so much because they just dismiss her as an opium addict. But actually with her imagination, uh, there's just some philosophical concepts, philosophical concept, concepts that fit her really well. And um, so I'm hoping, hoping beyond hope that I can tie all this together somehow. In the uh, fourth part that I'm working on, I've gone ahead and moved philosophy in the book up to the fourth part. Um, so I finished... Uh, I finished the, her essays and interviews and articles. For the most part, I think there's some I'm going to pull offline, uh, pull off the internet and, and see if there's more to add to that. 
Uh, finished the symbolism, although there might be some more I need to add to it. I'm not sure. Finished a woman's experience that would finish today. And so I decided to move philosophies and up to part four. So I'm hoping as I work through that, I'll um, uh, be able to kind of bring all these insights I think I'm having uh, about the book together, at least for the characters. And it, it pertains to the story and also to the characters. So <sighs> not to mention, and a lot of the philosophy is mentioned in the book, so I still need to go back and look at the philosophies and the philosophers that are mentioned in the book to see how they might relate to, if any. But in the end, I think there's another simpler answer. But I'll have to wait till I get to the end. All right. Um, have a great day and thank you for listening. Bye.